Well, it's so great to come and worship today and to have uh, Misael and Yolanda and Rebecca and Misael number two with us this weekend and getting to know them and, uh, and having them with us. And also, I know you're going to be teaching a class uh, next hour and uh, got to speak to the men yesterday morning and uh, it's been a blessing to have you and uh, this is your home. This is your home. I know you have many homes and it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Well, I invite you to uh, open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 and stand with me to read God's Word. So we're going through the Beatitudes in our larger study of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking again at one verse today, Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, but we're going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. This is God's Word. Matthew 5.1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, this is your word. This is strong. This is powerful. And Lord, we know you want to use this in our life today. We thank you, Lord, that we could read the very words of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you use these to change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is the best-known part of Jesus' teaching. It's the greatest sermon ever by the greatest preacher ever. In verse 1 of chapter 5 here in Matthew, before the sermon, Jesus sits down. He assumes the, the role, the posture of a rabbi, of a teacher. And his disciples come to him as his students to listen and to learn. Now, we must remember that Jesus spoke this sermon to his disciples, those who were already children of God, in God's family, those who were citizens of God's kingdom. The sermon illustrates a Christian's character, a Christian's influence and conduct and devotion and ambition and relationships and commitment. And Jesus describes the character of a Christian In the Beatitudes, what Christians are by virtue of their relationship to Him. I used to think that the Beatitudes spoke in generalities, in 
in a pretty general way of people that if, if they did the thing spoken of, they'd get the benefit listed for you know, the corresponding blessing. But they speak specifically, not of eight types of people, but of one kind of person, Christians, followers of Jesus. You see, God's children will reflect the character of their father. Now, last week, we looked at the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God, those who, because of that acknowledgement, have a humble spirit, a humble attitude, a humble heart. The New English Bible translates it this way, they know their need of God. They know they need God. They realize they have and are nothing spiritually without Jesus. And so they yield to Christ's rule in their life. Now today we're looking at the second beatitude, Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? How can that be? If they're sad, how can they be happy? You see, each beatitude begins with the word blessed, Greek word makarios. Now, we use the English word happy, as do some Bible translations. Young's literal translation says, happy are the mourning, those who mourn. But our normal use of happy and God's use of happy are totally different. They're very, very different. Makarios implies uh, Deep abiding joy, a deep abiding sense of well-being because God is in control and it, it signifies genuine happiness, genuine happiness. You ask someone to define happiness and they will, they will tell you it means living the life you want or the life you always wanted. It means getting the things that you want. It means feeling really good. It means realizing your full potential. Most people I know are on a quest for happiness, even if they won't admit it. They want peace. They want harmony. They want a sense of well-being. But the pursuit of happiness apart from Christ leaves us empty. It leaves us wanting. It leaves us in a quandary. We can't find it apart from Him. The thing we're told is right within our grasp, keeps slipping away. It keeps disappearing like a mirage, evaporating in the middle of the desert. What our, thir- what our souls are thirsting for disappears right before our eyes. See, trying to make ourselves happy just results in more unhappiness. Doesn't it? The harder we work to try to be happy, the less happy we are. Paul knew the secret. We saw it in, see it in Philippians chapter 4. Paul knew the secret of being content in Christ. That true happiness is that which is unaffected by outside circumstances. Not poverty, not disease, not weakness, not trouble, not war, not sickness. None of the things in the world of men, not relo- relational breakdown, Not our own failures, our own disappointments, not even death. 
God desires for his people to have the joy, that sense of well-being that doesn't depend on what is temporary and what is passing, but on what is rooted in the character of God. Happiness is often described as a subjective uh, state of mind. I feel happy. Jesus is making an objective statement about Christians. He is describing what God thinks of them and why they're blessed, not what they might feel like at any given moment in time. So how can the sad be happy? What is Jesus saying in this verse? How does it relate? What do we do in terms of mourning, and what does God do in terms of comfort? Well, let's first look at what we do. See, what we do is we mourn. We're the mourners. We celebrate gain. We celebrate uh, things we see as good things. We mourn loss. We mourn things that are taken away. It's a part of being human. It's just a part. We cannot and should not ignore this. We should not downplay it. God does not downplay it. In Ecclesiastes verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, we read that there is a time to mourn. There's a time to celebrate, but there is a time to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that mean? Mourn. To mourn, it's not a hard word for us to get our arms around. It means to lament. It means to, uh, to mourn for the dead. It is the strongest Greek word for mourning. It means to grieve so much that it can't be hidden. It means to grieve so much that it is noticeable to other people. Basically, it means overwhelming grief. Job, who lost everything in one fell swoop, says, my eyes weep for grief. Jeremiah, also known as the weeping prophet, was known to cry with tears day and night. What should we mourn about? What do we mourn about? And what should we mourn about? Romans Romans chapter 12 says that we should uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We all experience varying degrees of... um, of sadness, of disappointment, of, of grief and mourning, both in our lives, in our families, in the community. We grieve over the loss of loved ones, loss of health, loss of a job, loss of income, a relationship that ends. We're sad when things don't go a certain way. We mourn over those who've died. Matthew chapter 2, verse 8. Rachel, weeping for her children. The slaughter of the innocent. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, mourned over his son who died. It was as a result of his own sin. But he mourned the death of his son. As he should. Jesus wept over Lazarus. A verse many of you like to memorize because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Matthew 11.35. John 11.35. Jesus wept. Right? Hitting close to home. Tomorrow is the one year anniversary of, of, uh, of our friend and brother's 
Gary King's passing. And he went quick. Uh, struck down by ALS. We grieve loss. Mary's here this morning. She still grieves. It's been a year, but you still feel the pain. See, we grieve loss, but we hope in Christ. We don't grieve like everyone else who have no hope. We have hope, but we grieve. We mourn. It's appropriate. It's normal. It's expected as part of being human. We feel deeply. We experience deep pain, sadness, and and loss. It's necessary, it's appropriate, it's, it's a part of the human experience to mourn these things. But I don't believe that this is the mourning that Jesus is referring to. Mourning over someone's physical uh, death or physical suffering or other loss is referred to many times in Scripture. There are many places we can go to show the comfort that God gives to those who are in that kind of pain. But our text for this morning is Matthew 5, verse 4, and I dare not superimpose those things upon a text that isn't teaching that. What, what is the mourning that Jesus is referring to in this verse. Now let's remember the context of the Beatitudes. Jesus is describing the character of Christians. Now he is speaking of mourning over a spiritual problem that infects every human being, that affects every person, that we struggle with and live with daily, whether we admit it or not. Jesus is talking about mourning over sin. Mourning over our sin. Grieving over sin and its effects that we live with on a daily basis. Mourning over the loss of innocence. Mourning over the loss of fellowship with God. Mourning over the loss of blessing due to sin. As Robert Mounts put it, Jesus is talking about those who are filled with regret for their own waywardness and for the evil that is so prevalent in the world. Jesus is talking about how Christians mourn over their sin to the point where they confess it and repent of it and turn from it. That's why you could say that the sad are happy at the same time. They admit it and they turn away from it. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me give you a little background. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a situation referred to by the Apostle Paul where there was a sin issue in the lives of some people in the body in that church that no one wanted to deal with the issue. Everybody wanted to ignore the issue. And Paul even said that you have now become arrogant rather than mourning over this sin that is going on in in your midst. 
And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs them to, to deal with it as hard as it would be that they would need to lovingly deal with this issue. And, and you kind of have to wonder, well, did they or not? We find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that they did. And in, let's just look at, at verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. For though, Paul says, I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, I don't now. <laughs> for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice. Well, now he's happy. I rejoice now that you were made sorrowful, not but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. He, he was say, he's saying God wanted you to, to be sorrowful. You hadn't been before. You were reminded of it, and then you became sorrowful, and that's a good thing. Okay? So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And he goes on to talk about the godly sorrow that was present in them once they received that correction. The mourning and the grief that Jesus is talking about is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. A godly sorrow that leads to repentance, to turn from sin back to God and to to go away from that and towards God as our source of of, um, relief, as our source of guidance and, and strength. James chapter 4. In James chapter 4 and verse 9, when, when, when he says that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble and that we should submit to God and we should draw near to him, in verse 9 he says this, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound so hot, does it? Doesn't sound fun. But it says, humble yourself in the presence of God and he will exalt you. Humble your hearts before God. You see, the the truly repentant are blessed. Think about Judas for a minute. Judas who betrayed Jesus, the only one that was lost. He wept bitterly after he was caught, but he didn't repent. It was because he was caught. The truly repentant are blessed. In, in, the, in, a, in a somewhat parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, I don't think it's the same situation. Some people do. But one of the things Jesus did is he gave four beatitudes in that, in that context and four woes. Okay, Four blessings and four woes. Now, the woe that he gives, he said this, Woe to you who laugh now. That's what Jesus said. Woe to you who laugh now. Now, it's not bad to laugh. What he is pointing to is that they weren't taking their sin seriously. Woe to you who don't take their sin seriously. You shall mourn and weep later. So the godly sorrow that leads to repentance, the sorrow over our sin. 
Now, specifically, what sin are we to mourn over? Now, if you're taking notes, uh, you may want to turn your note sheet over right now. I want to give you uh, three, three areas of mourning over sin. You might want to write these down. Three areas of mourning over sin that I want to point out. The first is, is, is the obvious one, because you can't mourn over any sin unless you mourn over your own first. Uh, we mourn over our sins. That's the first thing. We mourn over our sin. We see it as an affront to God. Uh, one of the best places to, to see the attitude towards sin that God wants us to have is in, um, in Psalm 51. When, when, when David, coming to God for pardon, he is praying the prayer of a, of a uh, contrite sinner, okay? of, a, of a sorrowful mourning sinner, someone who is coming to God and knowing that they have done wrong. A heart in tune with God. And here's what he said in Psalm 51, verse 3. He said, I know my transgressions. He was living with them every day. They were weighing heavy upon his soul. You know what it's like when they're weighing you down and you're thinking about it even day and night at times. He said, my sin is ever before me. It permeated his life. It messed him up to the point where he could only think of that. And in verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. That's the correct attitude towards our sin that God wants us to have. God, it's, been, it's an affront to you. I have sinned against you. I have done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's the attitude God wants us to have about our own sin. So first, we must mourn over our own sin. That's the obvious point. The second point, though, is that we mourn over other people's sin. You say, what? I don't want to mourn over their sin. I want to judge them for it. (laughs) You see, when you mourn over other people's sin, you don't judge them for it. You are grieved in your heart over someone else that is suffering loss because of their choices. But you're not there trying to set them straight all the time. You care about them so much, you mourn. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 136 said this, My eyes shed streams of tears, buckets of tears, because men do not keep your word, mourning over the sins of others. Paul knew it. Paul in Philippians 3 said, I tell you even now weeping that these that I am speaking of are enemies of the cross of Christ. He wept over it. He didn't rail against them. He wept over them. He admonished in Acts chapter 20, he tells about how he was with them for, for several years, admonishing them with tears, weeping to the, to the point of weeping. I realize some of us men, we think uh, you know, we're a sissy if we cry. But God wants us to mourn over our own sin, whatever that looks like. It doesn't mean manufacturing tears, okay? Some people can cry at a moment's notice, right? Other people, it's like there's no... Water in the duct. (laughs) Um, But there's a mourning that's appropriate, whether there's tears or not. And I think there's another place that we should mourn, a third place, that we, a place to mourn over uh, our corporate sins uh, as God's people, or even our country's sins, national sins. 
In Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, you might want to write that down. In, in that setting, Ezra cries out to God and says, we have sinned. You see it many times in the Old Testament. The people had gone astray and a leader would get up and pray on behalf of the people and weep because they had sinned. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 5, you see the same thing. What do we mourn and weep over maybe even as a country? There's one thing that comes to my mind that's like looming like a like something I want to forget. It's abortion. It's killing innocent babies when they're in their mom's womb. Now we should never condemn anyone who has made this mistake and we need to reach out with love and compassion to everyone who is is feeling the effects of, of sin. No matter what sin it is. No matter what. But we live in a country and I was thinking about this this week a lot because I've become inoculated to it. And we as a people have become resigned to, well, it's just the way it is. We live in a country where it is legal for a mother to kill her baby at any time before that baby comes out of the womb. Do you realize that? We live in the greatest country on earth. But we live in a country where it is legal to kill a baby. In fact, we have slid to the point where in in many cases, the life of an animal is held in higher regard than that of a child. We should mourn over this. We should weep. This is not a political issue. It is a biblical issue. A biblical one. We have turned our backs on God as a country. And just because it's legal does not make it right. Murder. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would turn the hearts of those who are bent on destroying life whether it's for political reasons or monetary reasons or any other selfish reason, that God would, would, would turn their hearts, that they would cease playing God. When you take another person's life in your hands, you are playing God. That they would cease playing God. That they would acknowledge and uphold the sanctity of human life. The all human life, all life, is sacred in God's sight because we are made in the image of God. Every person. Psalm 139 tells us we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. We should grieve. We grieve over our own sin. We grieve over other sin. We should grieve over this national sin. And and it's not the only one. But it is is so blatant. And and I, I ignore it on a daily basis. It's one thing to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. It's another to grieve and mourn over it. It's another to say, I have sinned. It's another to say, I am overtaken with grief because of that sin. John Stott put it this way, confession is one thing, contrition is another. 
The ESV Study Bible puts it like this. The physical, emotional, and financial loss resulting from sin should lead to mourning and longing for God's forgiveness and healing. Whether it's our sin, others' sin, national sin, we need to seek God's forgiveness and healing. Not with proud hearts, with humble hearts. See, when we grasp the magnitude of our sin, we then are able to to realize the immensity of God's grace. But every good thing has its enemy. What keeps us from mourning? There are things that keep us from mourning. I pinpointed three things that in my life, and I'd venture to guess in your life as well, keep me from mourning and keep you from mourning. See, the very thing that we should mourn keeps us from mourning. Sin is the enemy of mourning, but it shows itself in three primary ways in my life. And again, I would venture to guess these would be true in, in large part in your life as well. Pride in general, and getting specific, resentment and comparison. Pride, resentment, and comparison. You see, first of all, I do not mourn over my sin when I am overtaken by pride. Back in the 1950s, before I was born, that would be 1962, uh, in the 1950s, C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. He meant it was the worst, not the best. The worst sin he called pride. He said, it is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. It is an affront to God. It is hostility towards God. Pride. See, pride is we don't want to admit that we're wrong. I don't want to admit when I'm wrong. We put ourselves above God, and we don't want to have to answer to Him, to a higher authority, and so... We tell ourselves, oh, that's sin. That wasn't so bad. It's not as bad as everyone else's. I only did that once. It's not such a big deal. Pride is us substituting ourselves for God. Grace is God substituting himself for us. And then there's the resentment. I don't mourn over my sin when I'm filled with resentment towards others due to something they did to me. Or I treat them badly because of how they treated me, doing the same thing I'm angry at them for? Or I refuse to let it go? Or when another person has something I want, I wish they didn't? I resent that? Dante defined envy as love of one's own good perverted to a desire to deprive other men of theirs. Resentment is very close to envy. 
See, the root of resentment is pride and envy. Jeff Cook wrote this, that envy has the deadly ability to distract our heart and mind from the daily bread that God puts in our hands each morning. Focusing us instead on the gifts, status, talents, and joys he gives to others. This is not only a rejection of the good that God has given to me, this is a desire to become someone I'm not, was never made to be, and will not enjoy becoming if my jealousy ever succeeds. In Dante's Inferno, the punishment for the envious was to have their eyes sewn shut because they gained sinful pleasure from seeing others brought low. Aquinas described envy as sorrow for another's good. When you and I mourn over someone else's happiness and are happy when they are mourning, we don't mourn over our sin because then we are sitting as judge. When we mourn appropriately over sin, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. You're glad when others do well. You're sad when they don't. Now closely related to resentment and stemming also from pride is comparison. If you are caught up in playing the comparison game like I often am, you don't mourn over sin when you're fixated on comparing yourself to others. Because when we compare ourselves to others, we will do one of two things. We will either, both of which are unhealthy by the way, we will either insist that, they are, that we are worse than everyone else, or we will insist that we are just as good or better than everyone else. See, we're using the wrong me- measuring stick. We're measuring ourselves by everyone else. Jonah is a prime example of, of this, of this prideful resentment in comparison. Here, here God calls him to go to Nineveh and and cry out that in, in several days that the city will be overthrown because their sin before God. Now, instead of mourning over their sin, Jonah didn't want them to get God's grace. <laughs> Jonah was resentful of the fact that they were repenting. You ever find yourself resentful over someone else coming to Christ because now they're going to get the full benefit that you've received? You don't want them to have that? You begrudge them because of all the things they've done? Forgetting of all the things you've done? See, Jonah compared himself to them and he judged them unworthy of God's grace. He knew God was gracious and he didn't want them to have any of that. That, that destroys rather than restores. It destroys us and it restore, re, destroys our relationship with others and it destroys our relationship with God. Our fellowship messes up our fellowship with God. What we are called to do is mourn over our sin. Now pride and resentment and comparison keep us from doing that. So we're called to mourn. What's God's part? What's God's part? God comforts. What God does is comfort those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin because they shall be comforted. 
It's a certainty. It's true. It will happen. What is it? Well, we must remember who and what this comfort is for. It is for those who grieve over their sin. Now think with me for a moment into the Old Testament uh, economy. One of the, the, uh, the roles that the Old Testament prophets taught that the Messiah would fulfill is that of consolation, consoling the people. Godly men like Simeon were looking for the consolation of Israel. Jesus. In Isaiah 40, in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, God says. We read in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, and verse 3, I love these words. I even wrote a song back in the 80s about it. I will not sing it for you. Um, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I love that. God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. It it covers all things. God's comfort covers us. He is more than abundant. What's the comfort we're talking about here? What exactly is this comfort? There's only one comfort that can relieve the grief of sin. Only one. Only one thing. It's God's free and unmerited forgiveness. Forgiveness is the comfort. Pronouncing you not guilty for the wrong things you have done. The greatest comfort in all the world is the comfort of God's forgiveness. Those who are grieved over their sin receive Forgiveness of sin because they confess and repent of their waywardness. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin and they will be comforted. Because those who mourn over their sin will admit it to God and will turn from it and receive God's forgiveness. Grant Richardson wrote this, God directly comforts his people by forgiving their sin. Forgiveness comes from the one who died on the cross for our sins. Just in case you think that you've got to work yourself up to a really nice-looking grief that makes God say, oh, you, you feel really, really sorry, so I will forgive you now. Blessing emphasizes God's part in forgiveness. Our comfort does not rest in who we are or even in the act of mourning, but in God's provision. God provides for us in grace, frees us from the penalty of sin through the death of Christ on the cross. There remains no barrier between God and man. God forgives us because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, not because of the sincerity or intensity of our mourning. Psalm 51, later in that psalm, the Spirit inspired David to write, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Ephesians 1, 7, we read that in Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. You want to know what redemption through His blood means? It means the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we need. 
The effects of this forgiveness for those who are in Christ are, are amazing. They're awesome. They're wonderful. First, there is the freedom that comes when we are freed. We are restored in our life, in our relationship with God. In Luke 4, when Jesus stood up in the temple to read God's word, he read from Isaiah 61, which talked about proclaiming release and freedom to the captives held by sin and its effects. There's freedom that comes from forgiveness. There's also peace resulting from the reconciliation that God brings about with us and others that Jesus speaks peace to our wounded and sore and scarred consciences. Our souls that are, that are scarred due to our sin, when we mourn over that sin, Jesus speaks peace. He brings true comfort. It's not a mirage. It's true. It is real. Now, but we still mourn over our sin. We still mourn. We are comforted, and then we mourn. And we are comforted, and then we mourn. And so on and so forth. Because not until heaven will our comfort be complete. Until then we groan. Until then we labor. And we wait for the day that that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any mourning. One more thing God gives us as a result of, of the effects of forgiveness is assurance. Assurance, understanding and applying the idea of, of being secure in Christ. You see, many who, who know Jesus doubt that they really know him or that he is going to keep them, and that's playing right into the hand of the enemy. If he can keep you busy and fearful of whether you really have God's forgiveness and whether you really are saved and whether God is really at work in your life, then, then you won't do what God really wants you to do. Some keep thinking they have to earn God's favor. After coming to Christ, we feel like we still have to earn God's favor. And we think that there might be something we will do that will, that will take God's favor away from us and cause him to, to cast us out into the darkness. If you're caught in that trap, you've got to realize that your standing in Christ is based not on what you do, but on what Christ has done on the cross. There's some verses on your, on your note sheets. Romans 7 and 8 and, and uh, 2 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 3. And they're all talking about how those who come to faith in Christ are children of God. They belong to Him. They're secure. Read those. Look those up later. See what they say and believe what they say. Let God's word change your mind. And if you are are in Christ, if you have come to faith in Christ, that means that God has set you free from the law of sin and death. That means that God has forgiven you completely. That the blood of Jesus cleanses you from your sin. Continual cleansing. He has made you a new person. He has given you new desires and a new direction in life. Don't go back to the idea that, oh no, am I saved or not? Do you have that assurance today? If you do not have that assurance today and you are a believer, you need to appropriate the word of God and believe it. If you do not have that assurance and you're not a believer, you need Jesus. You need to come to faith in Jesus. 
to wrap this up, mourning is a part of being human. It's just part of the package. It's, it's part of the program. There is a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. There's a time to mourn. And if you, if you mourn over your sin, it will lead to repentance, which will lead to forgiveness and assurance. And the fact that God has saved you and, and is at work in your life. But what's the purpose? Happy are the sad. The purpose is not just to make us happy. God's primary concern is not our happiness, nor should it be ours. What's the purpose? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 61 as we close. Isaiah chapter 61. See, God uses, God gives us many good benefits, but our happiness is not his chief concern. So what's the purpose of God comforting those who mourn their sin? What's the purpose of God forgiving those who grieve the effects of sin? We're going to see it right here in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, because this is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, before he ever came, and these are all the things he did. This is what Jesus read when he went into the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. These are all things God does. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To comfort everyone who mourns. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And here's the reason. That he may be glorified. God's glory. God's glory. That's why the spiritually sad can be called truly happy. Because God is honored when we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy and are affected by it to the point that we mourn over our sin and we don't take it lightly when we realize the magnitude of that sinfulness and we appreciate the immensity of grace and we receive his forgiveness and it points us right again to the cross one more time. Jesus, for the, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Our comfort is found at the cross. His agony for our joy. He sets the captives free. All for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we once again are in awe of you. And we thank you, Lord God, for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that you have acted on our behalf, that you have acted upon us as we have come, those who have come to faith in you. We, you have acted in our favor, that you have set us free from the law of sin and death, and that you have made us new people with a new direction in life, with a new desire to please you. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for your work in our life. We thank you, Lord, and we want to live in light of that truth today. Let me pray in Jesus' name.